Hey Poetry Says fans, Alice here. Thanks so much for downloading another episode. Today I get to share with you a conversation I had with Petra White a couple of months back now. I first met Petra at a launch at Collected Works here in Melbourne and I wanted to speak to her because she had written a poem that was very, very important to me and still is called The Sound of Work. And it's one of the the few poems that I know of that really takes the full horror of working in an office job uh, into account. So I was introduced to her and uh, I was introduced to Petra, promptly forgot the title of the poem and so ended up having a relatively awkward conversation in which I tried to describe her own poem to her. It didn't go well. I felt pretty bad. I think I slinked out of there pretty quickly after that, Um, but lived to tell the tale and managed to finally get up the guts to line up this interview with Petra just before or just as she was preparing to leave Australia to move to London. So really glad that we finally got the chance to talk. We start out by talking about her latest book, Reading for a Quiet Morning, which came out uh, last year. And this is a really incredible, quite ambitious book, which is made of two halves. The first half being a long poem that looks at Ezekiel and his relationship to God and to his wife. It's really, really incredible long poem. And then the second half of the book are some really beautiful shorter works as well. So we talk about reading for a quiet morning to start with, and then we move on to um, A Hunger which has been put out by John Leonard Press as a collection that also includes Petra's two previous books, The Simplified World and The Incoming Tide. So we talk about the poems in there, specifically The Sound of Work, and then we go on to talk about the practice of revision, where we think poems come from, and yet the work that goes into actually coming up with an idea and then doing something original with language to create a poem. question from my favorite poetry podcast the now defunct poetry gods they always start they used to start their episodes by just asking their guests what's on your mind (laughs) (laughs) what have you been thinking about lately poetry wise or otherwise um i just just finished this morning the first draft of a poem called for my daughter which the title may change um I was thinking about Coleridge's poem Frost at Midnight and Yeats's A Prayer for My Daughter and that kind of projecting the child's life and and willing it to be a certain way. And um, I was also thinking about motherhood because somebody at a party on Saturday night said, oh, you should be writing about motherhood. It's the most raw experience of your life. Hang on, (laughs) you should be? You should be, yeah. And I, I just thought, well... I suppose it is, but it, at the same time, it isn't. Um, it's something that's happened, and it's and it's real, and it exists, and mm. um, and in some ways, I've become another person quite seamlessly. And I, that's I great. don't know. I'm mean, not that it's easy or anything. It's not, but um, to write about motherhood as such would be to focus on me, and I'm not comfortable doing that. 
Um, I don't think that I'm the interesting thing at the moment. Um, and what I am is difficult to grasp anyway because I'm so connected to this other little person. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to write a poem that explores a bit of that. So when you say you were writing it this morning, do, do you mean you started a new poem this morning? Yeah. Or, yeah, wow. Just That's thoughts great. about the whole experience, I guess, and trying to examine the the strangeness of it, mm. the freshness of it. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Did it it's feel like it be. kind of came all of a piece? Or? Uh, yeah, uh, and I've been working on it for a couple of weeks, um, probably more than a few weeks, actually. Um but it's, it's actually hard to write about because I just get too emotional. Mm. <laughs> it just make me cry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just something I'm kind of playing with at the moment. Right. Did you ever see uh, going around maybe six months ago or maybe more, there was a poem that kept popping up online called Good Bones? No. I don't know if it's great or terrible it's kind of like a very very super straightforward poem from a mother to her children kind of likening the world to a house like as if she were a real estate agent saying come come and look at this what we have here it looks very ramshackle and shaky and there's lots of problems with it but it has good bones and I think it was kind of written from a place of like sort of a little bit of what you're saying like uh hope that her children might have a good life um but yeah i don't know why at that point it was doing the rounds i think it was around the time of the 2016 election actually all oh, right oh, i should see that i've looked that up yeah i think yeah i think there is i think what struck me more than anything is the uncertainty mm. that I don't know what will happen from one day to the next. Um, she's changing so quickly. Um, but I can't I can't imagine her future at all. There's just a total blank when I try to think about it. Yeah. Um, because it could be anything, I guess, and I don't want to will it in a certain direction. Mm. And then thinking about what kind of world she will <laughs> grow up in is a, I, that's another step forward that I haven't been able to make yet. Yeah. Um, that probably quite terrifying but yeah just the what fascinates me about it is is that uncertainty that Mm. you don't know what you're becoming you don't know what the child is becoming and you're something's just happening yeah and the and the pace of change too I've, i've been looking after my little nephew um just one day a week for the last year and um yeah, just every week he's a completely different child. Yeah. It, is, it is amazing. Yeah. Like especially around this time, kind of nine months to one year old, it's like, yeah. oh, today he can walk. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't do that last week. Like, yeah. It's amazing. But yeah, as you say, kind of projecting out to what will the world be like. I mean, we're I think we're well past the point of being able to predict that. We're like yeah. definitely, it feels definitely post-singularity now yes definitely (laughs) yeah so it's kind of not even worth worrying about really well that's one way of looking at it (laughs) yeah yeah that's right yeah wow so much change and I'm making a habit 
two now of talking to Melbourne poets who have been on my two interview list for a long time yeah. just before they leave the country. Yeah. <laughs> so I talked, or the leave the city, I talked to Anupama Pilbrow just before she moved to Newcastle. All right. Spoke to Will Drews the other week. He's just about to go to South America. Okay. And now speaking to you, you're about to go to the UK. Yeah. Yeah. For indefinite periods? Uh, well, we'll see. Um, my husband has a job there uh, and he'll have a working visa for two and a half years. So yeah. we'll see what happens beyond then. Cool. But yeah, probably would like to stay for a while. Yeah. In London or? In London. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, so much amazing. Like it just feels like London, there's like poetry under every stone in London. That's kind of how yeah. I felt when I was there. Yeah. Have you been there before? Yeah, a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my, my one regret from living there was it took me kind of the four or five months we were there to really find the poetry community that I was interested in. I spent a lot of time at like quite stuffy, uptight readings of people kind of reciting Keats and... All right. Which is like, <laughs> that's great. That's a good thing too. But um, it wasn't my scene per se yeah. and then like two weeks yeah. before i left i was like oh this is where i was meant to be all oh, right you have to tell me <laughs> yeah i'll try and find the um i think we probably have mutual friends who know the people i'm talking about so but there's just so many different circles so many mm. people trying different things like yeah yeah does that like is that something you think about when you think about moving or are you more thinking about just like the logistical like getting um Yes, I'm thinking about it a little bit, but it's we're still going through the visa stage at the moment mm. and still waiting for the outcome. So I'm, I'm not really thinking very much beyond that. But um, yeah. I know that there there are some some great British poets that I really admire, like yeah. um, Alice Oswald and Don Patterson. Yeah. Um, oh, I love Alice Oswald so yeah, much. Oh, my so. God. Have you ever seen her read? No. I... Uh, I haven't I haven't seen her in person but I've watched a, a YouTube clip of her and she has this she had this long poem just like fully from memory and she was kind of standing up at a podium just like in this this really vicious kind of whisper just <laughs> reciting it to the audience it was the most amazing thing I'd mm. ever seen yeah but yeah I didn't I didn't manage to find her when I was there okay I don't know where she's based or anything. I think she's in the country. In, yeah. In the Midwest somewhere. Yeah. Um, and how about the feeling of leaving this poetry community? Is that something you've contended with yet? or? Oh, I'll be very sad. Um, a lot of my close friends are poets mm-hmm. um, that I've known for the last 10, 15 years. So um, uh, it'd be very hard to leave them but um yeah yeah i guess that's what you've got to do well yeah i mean there are some really wonderful poets in melbourne and it's great to 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 know so many um and i hope i can replicate that experience in the uk but Mm. i I think it will take time it takes a while i feel like yeah with the brits yeah they're very very like they feel things so deeply but it's so hard to get beyond that like initial barrier and also when i was there i'd made the decision to be sober for a year so i didn't get into the whole drinking culture right (laughs) why did you do that it was such a poor decision oh terrible decision yeah like they were you know because you'd go to the pub and then they'd be all 
just garrulous and ridiculous and like wanting to hug you and being like oh you're from Australia and yeah it's hard to get on that level voluntarily sometimes and yeah. yeah I think uh not that I would condone or recommend that that's the approach you take but it does seem to be that drinking is part of socializing yeah. even yeah. more so Everywhere. than it is here yeah yeah I would love to talk to you about your books which I have here so I came to the launch of reading for a quiet morning um that must have been late last year year. yeah and uh then having read the book after afterwards I was I mean at the time as you were reading it I thought this is a mind-blowing project that I don't I don't know how it, like I'm fascinated to know how it came together, where it started, how you actually worked on these poems. Um, but yeah, having read it now, I'm just even more just can't just can't really fathom it basically. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if maybe we could start by just having you describe like how how the book's structured, what it is, and um, what you were where the idea started maybe. Yeah, um, I was I was brought up in a one of those fundamentalist end of the world um, Protestant cults, um, reading the Bible a great deal and always living with the possibility that God was going to or Jesus was going to come back and kill all the bad people and uh, send the rest of us to heaven, mm. and that wasn't a prospect that appealed to me as a child, and I. Um, I didn't understand why God would want to destroy what he had created. And I also didn't want to go to heaven. It sounded like a very dull place. Yeah, so, for a kid. Um, so I used, to, I used to pray to God that he would not come back and that I'd be allowed to live in the world and just appreciate it. Um, so so part of, so part of the, that poem is, is that kind of childish thought, that exploring that, question about why why God is so silly mm. um, uh, and I, I I just I don't really know how it came about I just thought Ezekiel was interesting and i have been interesting to write the poem about Ezekiel mm. and I hadn't really read the book of Ezekiel since I was a kid um, so I just started reading it as I started writing it and um, just found it um fascinating to think about the the humanity of Ezekiel as a prophet that he was somebody with um, foibles and mm. ambitions and um, so I tried to develop him um, you know hanging out with God and looking at the valley of the dry bones and uh, struggling with with language mm. I guess like a poet um, trying to trying to speak trying to speak um, as God would want him to. So he's a messenger, he's conveying God's voice mm. and he doesn't know if he is doing that properly or clearly enough or truthfully enough. Yeah. Um, and he never quite feels satisfied with it, he never quite gets it right. And the um, character of Esther I invented, it's his wife in the Bible, Ezekiel's wife dies um, because God wants 
to test his loyalty. So he just kills her off and forbids him to mourn. So um, I gave her a name and um, she just kind of developed as a character as well. Um, in some ways, she's a feminist character because um, she, um, she drops the apple into Eve's hand and you know, encourages that whole development of the world. Um, but I guess she's also, she's also the one who directly questions God um, and tries to challenge him. Um, yeah. So, and, then, and then God, I, I always saw God as a human sort of person who was um, quite foolish in many ways, mm. uh, uh, very vainglorious and uh, experimenting with creating and his creation is getting out of hand. Yeah. Um, so, and also as a person who doesn't really care about what he creates as well. So, yeah, it, God makes the most sense with those kind of human fallible characteristics, mm. I feel. Yeah. And that the relationship that you set up between Ezekiel and, and God and Esther and God also made a lot of sense to me because, I mean, I. I was not brought up in the church at all. I had um, a number of friends at uni, though, who were Christian. Mm. And for a little while, I went along to their Bible study for about a year. It was a very, like, loose, ramshackle Bible study and heavy quote marks. Like, it was basically just us hanging out. But that was my, my first kind of real interface with Christianity, such as it was. And one of my good friends from that Bible study, the way he ended up describing God was, you know, if there is one, he's alien and doesn't recognize us and lives yeah. you know, far out in space. Yeah. And I thought that that made sense. But I also think that this, this framework makes sense because it explains so much if you've got God just being, yeah, just a fallible human. Yeah. Um, I was wondering too about whether you thought about Ezekiel as just someone with a mental illness. Yeah, there's a book called um, uh, some Autobiography of God or God and Autobiography or something like that. And that describes Ezekiel as psychotic. Mm. Um, and I, I guess he is in the sense that if you remove the element of God, then Ezekiel is somebody who has visions and... Mm. And believes in them um, and that's psychotic um, but I I'm not convinced by by that idea I, I think that he is um, more of an artist or um, more somebody who's trying to actually create something and, and do something very tangible mm. um, but yes, if God, if God isn't there, if God isn't real, then, then of course he's, he's delusional. You got someone talking to themselves. Yeah. 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 It's such a. I mean, I should describe the poem a bit more fully for people who don't have the book. So. It's a long poem called "How the Temple Was Built." Um, when you were writing it, are you you were reading the book of Ezekiel? Are you kind of flipping back and forth between the poem and the book? Yeah, I read the I read Ezekiel for the first time and wrote a little bit of the poem, and then I read it, started reading again and writing more of the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me three months to to read it. It's 
quite dense yeah. reading. But it's not a um, writing through. It's not as if you're using words from the... No, I don't you know. think I've done that. Okay. Um, mm. Very rarely. Yeah, there's a couple of couple of quotes, I think, from the Bible. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I was aware of uh, that I was making something up that didn't necessarily... Well, certainly isn't any kind of scholarly reading of Ezekiel and there's a lot of inaccuracies and liberties. Mm. <laughs> um, Does it feel in any way kind of illicit to do that with a text? A sacred text? Yeah. Um, not to me, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I was always brought up to understand that the Bible was open to interpretation, that it had to be interpreted mm-hmm. because it's it's so mysterious um that's poetry so i i guess i uh saw it uh, uh, similar to myth um that like a story to be retold that the telling doesn't stop with the bible yeah it's a story that kind of lives has has another life Mm. and continues to be reinterpreted and changed yeah and as with esther you know you can bring people back you can draw Mm. them more fully Mm. um yeah. Was it a process that was fairly solitary or did you talk with other poets as you were writing it about what you were doing? Um, I, or towards the end, I um, worked with two editors. Um, so they helped to structure it and mm-hmm. um, eliminate bits that weren't working and clarify it um so i there was quite a bit of back and forth with them um but i didn't really talk to any other poets about it right so you're probably more a solitary process right right and is that fairly common in terms of how you write now yeah Mm -hmm. um i mean when my poems are finished i sometimes share them with my poet friends um but i tend to go through my editor first yeah so you're not i don't workshop yeah doing workshops (laughs) and writing groups and things like that yeah yeah i don't know it just seems like such a huge and that's only half the book that's the thing is that poem is only uh it's about 40 pages 40 pages yeah and then there are more poems as well in the second half um shorter poems uh what did they come in between or Afterwards, or oh, I don't remember. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a bit of a blur. Probably, probably largely afterwards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you think about the book now? It's kind of it's not actually that long out in the world, but yeah. I wonder how poets' feelings change as it kind of becomes this thing that's in bookshops and on people's shelves and things yeah. like that. Um, I think I'm still in the newborn book phase where. Um, what I'm writing now could easily go in that book. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like I haven't detached from it yep. fully just yet. Um, is there one from here that you would like to read, just to give people a sense? This is a, this is a lighter poem. The Lovely Sphinx. She knows already he will solve her riddle. She must dash herself against the rocks. All her lovely parts. The supple lion legs whose fur she combed and kept so bright. Her woman head, her crackling dragon wings, princely gleaming teeth, 
gently webbed fingers, delicate brown nails, a puckered and mottled green torso, naked and soft as an infant's, her sprightly odour of raspberries and almonds. The riddle, so perplexing, it kept the city free of men whose minds were not fine. Their bodies piled around her, she killed them with a jet of blood from her heart, poisonous to all who walk on two legs. Now Oedipus stands before her, squat, young, bald, all the blather comes out of its mouth. I will defeat you, give me your riddle. I killed a man on my way here, don't mess with me. She sees his fate in a snap. In a moment of motherly compassion, is tempted to withhold the riddle. But he leans in closer, he seethes into her teeth, give me the riddle. Then in a breath he solves it. The blood jet bubbles and sears in her chest. She watches him run off, squawking with glee. I solved the riddle, the city is mine, where is the princess? What now, she wonders, must I? My life is only just beginning. She sees death coming to escort her to the cliff. He is a man with eyes of tedious fire. She smiles at him. Answer my riddle. Mm-hmm. I like how that's a lighter one and yet it's full of blood yeah. and chilling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just thought it would be nice if the Sphinx had a second chance at life rather than throwing herself off a cliff. Yeah. Reading this book, I... I tended to think that I needed to be more um I needed to spend time getting more in touch with myth really because there are plenty of um poems in here that I you know I just didn't have the historical Mm. context to Mm. kind of get the full like I could I could appreciate the craft and the language but I was thinking okay but I don't fully um, I'm not getting the full weight of this poem because I don't know this myth in mm. particular, um, and I wish I just wish I'd had a better education in that. Really, oh well, like, I didn't. I didn't study classics either, so my oh. knowledge of myth is quite sketchy. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't know if that's true, but fair. <laughs> yeah, I think you can get the bare bones of a story from Google usually or Wikipedia. Actually, yeah, I was and doing that last night with a. A poem written after Horace. Oh yeah. Who I knew nothing about, but I just oh, read this poem yeah. by a guy called J.D. McClatchy. Yeah. It's called Night Ode, and it's is phenomenal. I read it like eight times in a row, and at the start it just says Horace four, and I was like, oh, what's Horace four? And then I just googled that, and then the yeah. whole thing made way more sense. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. yeah you can you can you can't get you don't have to go back to school, I suppose. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting what you say about the fact that the the poems you're writing now could fit with this with this latest book um i also have here uh, a hunger which is published again with simplified world incoming tide so that's about seven years of work all together i think oh uh, yeah right? i think it is yeah. yeah that was 2014 such a great thing too to have it all together but i guess what i what i'm thinking is what how do you feel about these poems now in terms of, I mean, the latest ones are 2014. Yeah. 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 Do they, is the stuff that you write, do you writing today, like the poem you're working on today, does it feel very removed from these or? Not really. Um, a friend of mine did a poetry question and answer thing the other night and she was saying that when she writes um, a new book, she consciously 
tries to make it different to her previous books. Yeah. Um, she tries to do something new um, and go in a new direction. Um, I've I've never really tried to do that. I I guess I see it. I see all my books as a continuum. Mm. Something hopefully is developing. Um, but I'm I've probably always tried to do the same thing, however vague that may sound. Mm. Um, and my my influences change all the time and I always experiment with different styles and mm. but it ends up being quite similar too. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like you you see the same thing through a different filter, different yeah. lens. Yeah, just like that. Yeah. yeah. In terms of influences, were there are there particular poets you can think of that would have shone a particular light on, on either of these books or, or any of these books? Um I think when I was writing, reading for a quiet morning, I was reading a lot of Stevie Smith. Oh, okay. I haven't read oh, any Stevie no. Smith. <laughs> oh, she's wonderful. You should yeah. have, a, have a look at her. Yeah, right. Oh. Um, and I think what what I like about my my two favourite poets are probably Stevie Smith and Rilke. Mm. And um, Stevie Smith, because of her wit, um, she's a very funny poet. Mm. But she's also very... Um, morbid and um, has a constant awareness of death. Yeah. Um, like most poets, I suppose. Um, and Rilke is a poet that kind of gets to your soul. You you read Rilke for that kind of way of transforming your thinking. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you read another poet like Auden for his skill, um, which is amazing. Mm. Um, and then and then. I think of Stevie Smith cutting through, like bringing Rilke more down to earth and um, bringing in that element of wit and mm. worldliness um, that isn't in his poetry. Yeah, I don't so, think of worldly and think of Rilke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, where should I start with Stevie Smith? What's a good, is there any poem that comes to mind? Oh, the, the Poetry Foundation website has a good selection okay, of her cool. poems. Uh, or you can get the collected. Um, all the poems. <laughs> well, you've seen book. my pile here of unread. Oh, no, it add to your pile. It's good to have a pile. <laughs> oh, my God. It's out of control. Oh, man. Poets who can do the... Who can be funny while also being... Deadly serious. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's always incredible. Um, it's, I think it's pretty easy to be serious. And yeah. it's relative. Like, you can be funny... But yeah, managing both, that's a, that's a real balancing act. I did want to ask you about some of the poems in here. Um, specifically, so this is looking at the uh, From a Hunger, the 13 Love Poems. Yep. So I remember meeting you or being introduced to you at Collected Works at a launch one time. And I've always regretted this because I, because I knew who you were and I knew that you'd written this poem called The Sound of Work. But in my, oh my God, I've been collected works surrounded by poets, fluster, I totally forgot the title of the poem. So we just ended up having this silly conversation where I was like, I really love your poem. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about work. (laughs) Because at the time I was, I was trapped in an office job and it was just such a lifeline. I'm still trapped in an office job. (laughs) It's actually a new version of A Hunger that's been published um, for the VCE. 
Oh, really? Um, oh, my gosh. And it's got a revised version of The Sound of Work. So really? Some, some bits have been cut out. <gasps> Which bits have been cut out? Oh, I don't know now. I can't remember. Oh, my God. Um, oh, wow. So this, this book's in the curriculum now. Oh, for next year. That's incredible. Yeah. So. Wow, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how... This was the poem that got me to keep writing when I had that particular job. Because I oh. thought that if I were to write about work, I would be boring people or it was yeah, just an off-limit yeah. subject. It's just yeah. so... It's like there's nothing there. But there are so many poems in here. I mean, there's a strong theme of of love obviously it's a, it's love poems but also like the office and the office poems are the ones that like hit me the most I think. yeah, yeah. I, I just find work fascinating because yeah. I mean, when I first started working full-time I I was struck by the way my colleagues would say we as yeah in, we do this and we do that yeah it's like really is it is it you like uh and then I learned to say it as well but um oh like why don't we um, make a note about that or like yeah, why don't yeah. we see this if is we what can... we're doing and, yeah uh, and what they yeah. mean is this is what I'm doing or this is what you will do after this meeting is finished you know? but also taking uh, taking ownership of the company saying, oh yeah like, like the company does say we yeah um because you become part of something mm. um but yeah works works so interesting because everyone has to do it just about and mm. it's there are great expectations of it. It's supposed to define you. Um, yep. It's supposed to fulfil you. It's supposed to pay well, ideally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you if you're not doing well in life, it's because you're not working or you're not working in a good enough job. Mm. Um, it's so central to everything that we do. Um, What's the first thing that people will ask when they meet? What you? do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such a rude question. Yeah. <laughs> think about. Yeah. And then a lot of it, I mean, I've always worked in offices, I worked in publishing, and now I work in the public service. Mm-hmm. And there was a period where I was working in one for one department where I had absolutely nothing to do. Mm. I, I don't know how, every day was like a long haul flight, I would just try and get through it. Oh my God, I know there that was, feeling. There was just nothing, and it was awful. Oh. Um, and that's what The Sound of Work is partly about, yeah. the, just that desolation. And... I didn't want to do nothing. I, I wanted to, to work and make a contribution. Yeah. And, and they would say, no, there's actually nothing for you to do, so just go back and sit down. Go back and sit down? Yeah. <laughs> did you did you write? I suppose you're not, you can't really write. I couldn't, in space I couldn't write at work. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do occasionally scribble something down, but not actually work properly on something mm. in that environment. Yeah, that's right, because A, it's not anything like what you're meant to be doing, and B, mm. just the environment is so yeah. sterile. And yeah. That said, I did used to have really high expectations of myself that I would be able to get to work early and yeah. and write something. Yeah. I used to try to do that. I used to get up at five and try and write before work. That's right. I remember you saying that. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> need to sleep. Yeah, sleep is more important. Like, you're more likely to write a, a poem if you've had some sleep. Yeah. Probably. Would you mind reading a little bit from The Sound of Work, just to give yeah, people a sense um, of it? Let's read a short bit, um, which is now part three. Um, and it begins with a line from Auden. Our human idea of having a self 
this bulky thing, this grandeur, it must grow like a plant, must be watered with love, it must have fashion, holidays, poetry, a body gleaming with fitness, a job that is challenging without being stressful. It must advance grotesque into some state we can regard with satisfaction when we look back on the slow and happy decline, grey nomading through the Pilbara, collecting grandchildren as a Medusa collects heads. <laughs> oh, man. I hate to think of the year 12s who are going to study that and think, oh, my God, I don't want to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so great, though. It's so great. There was a part of this poem, I think, that I actually photographed and sent to a friend of mine who was having a very bad day in her office job about um, a meeting at which uh, there's like a challenge around productivity and like, are you, you know, you're not contributing as much as you once were and um, we know you've got potential. Yeah, here we go. Service. The one that starts, it's not, it's not that you aren't impeccable, clearly you have an original mind. It's just, can we call you by your first name? Something is lacking. Do you, do you remember that one? Or? Yeah. <laughs> it was just so great to be able to send that to her and just say, like, look, it's, everybody feels this way sometimes. <laughs> so everyone has these horrible meetings. Yes, the terror of performance management. Yeah, oh my God. Because when I had nothing to do, I was given a very bad performance rating for not doing any work. Well, what? <laughs> there wasn't any work to do. But you were asking for work. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. It just seems so inhuman, like the nine to five Monday to Friday. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's tough for everyone. Yeah. And of course, it's not nine to five for a lot of people. No, absolutely people not. Work ridiculously long hours. Yeah. Add the commute to that, and yeah. Mm. And just do that for 40 years and then you get to stop and wonder yeah. what was meant to have happened there. Yeah. Crazy. So with a, with a poem like that, would that have gone through many, many drafts for you? Or Yeah. yeah. The, the first part of it was in my second book, The Simplified World. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like it wasn't finished. So I took it out. Well, I didn't take it out. It had already been published. Um, I just um, decided to add to it, and it changed a lot as well. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how many drafts it would have gone through. Probably quite a lot. Yeah. Do you revise? Like, do you revise by hand? Like, scribbling on things? No, or? I um, I use a computer or I use my phone or iPad. So it's so it's quite it's pretty bad, really, because I don't have any record of my hardly ever like make separate files so yeah. I just keep working on the same same file and I mm. have no trace of what the previous drafts were yeah and my editor is always telling me off about it I'm the same though and I'm sure that that's sure most really common yeah. yeah I know that there are those poets who have you know v80 of I know I know of yeah. one in particular who has all of his first drafts from the first poem he wrote wow um, and they're all meticulously catalogued and yeah um, see I just don't feel like I'm going to lose anything that important like, <laughs> yeah I just yeah I don't I don't really want to leave any traces <laughs> well that too <laughs> that too do you remember what it felt like when you first started writing poetry is it something that um, very hard mm. 
I remember because I was originally when I was about 19 I started trying to write a novel and I wasn't successful at this and in that process I started writing writing poems yeah and I remember the first one I tried to write I was shocked by how difficult it was because I thought oh poetry that's that's easy the yeah. poem is short yep um, <laughs> yeah. and I yeah uh, the difficulty was quite addictive um, so I kept I kept going with it and then I increasingly wrote more poetry uh, until I and failing at it quite badly for several years until I understood that you had to redraft things mm. and and you could do as many drafts as you wanted to like I think I still had a bit of a hangover from the from reading the beat generation as a, uh, as a teenager first draft <laughs> first thought best first thought best thought you know write yeah. the whole thing in three weeks yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's when I started reading Rilke quite intensively, um, mm. and I understood that he revised things, and that you could kind of steal something, get something into a more solid and tangible shape by reworking it constantly, and mm. that that was necessary and and perfectly fine yeah. to do. So that changed changed things a lot for me. Yeah, I think there is that moment for many many poets where you realize oh it's actually not just my uninterrupted genius that goes no. down onto the page like it's yeah. a it's like making anything um yeah it does require you to go back and look at it again and look at it in, in a really like stark brutal way sometimes manhandle it yep yep how did you know that you weren't succeeding at it? Was it just your own sense of that? Or were you um, sending things out and they were coming back? Or Yeah, that, that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the poems just didn't last. Mm. Like I'd look at them a couple of weeks later and I feel like they weren't that much good. Yeah. Um, and it was, I guess, just a question of a process of... Um, reading a lot and thinking well why isn't my poem as good as that yeah. <laughs> not that it ever would be but um, why, do, why don't I have that depth and dimension um, mm. what's happening what, what yeah. is that poet doing that I'm not doing Yeah. Um, is it just a matter of revising manhandling or are there other things that go into it like sometimes I think with with poems that like there are certain of my poems that I have manhandled nearly to death. Yeah, well, you can do that. Too. Yeah, but it's but I but I feel as if that's happening because the initial idea just wasn't very strong. Yeah, often you lose the original idea. Mm. I think that's okay because um, that's not really important. Right, just move to the next thing. It's just it's more about how the poem develops and what the poem will permit you to do. I think once you've written the first line, you've established the limitations and the scope of the poem, almost. I think that's true. Like, when you write that first line, you're kind of setting yourself some parameters. Yeah. Yeah. And also, once you write that first line, you you kind of cut yourself off from the idea because the idea is only in your head Mm. and the poem is what's on the page, the words on the page are all you have. Yeah. I guess I try not to be attached 
to the idea or let the words change the idea and develop it. It, it sounds as if you don't really subscribe to any kind of mystical thinking around ideas and where they come from. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to find Liz Gilbert's Big Magic on your bookshelf. No, I don't know that book. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, kind of... Uh, oh, God, how to describe that book. So basically, it's Liz Gilbert being like, there's a bunch of ideas out there in the universe and you as a creator it's your job to like receive them and make a good home for them yeah um and if you don't they're gonna bugger off to somewhere else but it's it's strangely like to kind of save myself from the literary hole i've just dug myself it's um uh connected to uh, an idea from uh the poet jack spicer as well who was mm. like if you're actually writing a good poem you're taking dictation you're not it's not coming from you mm. um and I find those ideas like deeply seductive and very free, yeah, but I also yeah. think they're untrue. I think if you're dictating dictation, um, it's not seamless. You may be getting it in snatches right. and bursts, yeah. and it probably isn't going to be very clear. Yeah, It's not a fluid transition from one um, thing to another. Yeah, you're going to be like Ezekiel, doubting whether you... Yeah. yeah. And I guess what we what the thing about poetry is that it's about words and about language mm. and it's about I mean ideas are a dime a dozen we all have them we all have interesting thoughts um, but it's being able to do something original with language that is what really matters I think so it's mm. um, so that's I think why I wouldn't be so attached to the idea yeah in terms of originality though um, one of the again just going back to reading for a quiet morning one of the strong senses i get from that book is that i mean you say you don't have a, a deep knowledge of the classics but you clearly have like a fairly strong <laughs> knowledge of the classics um do you ever feel hampered by that like do you ever feel like oh you know Auden's done it better real done it better yeah what's the point i don't think i aim to outdo anyone but i see it as a continuum that um, that these stories are ancient and they've been continually retold throughout history mm. and there's something exciting about having a go at joining in that telling and entering that tradition mm. I guess I often I often refer to other poets and um, sometimes steal other lines to establish that continuity and sometimes I think of think of a different angle or it strikes me in a different way like yeah. um i i've just written a poem about daphne daphne is um uh, a nymph who was pursued by the god apollo and when he caught up to you probably know this when he caught up to her um, nearly caught up to her she turned into a tree and her virginity was preserved intact and he didn't get her but she was a tree forever and that was it and oh, i just okay. thought that was a tragedy and I wanted to explore that as something quite tragic. Lots of poets have attacked that in a different way, mm. from a feminist angle or, or another angle. So, I don't know. But it feels open to you. It feels like... Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of permission. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why there shouldn't be. Like, I'm definitely not saying that there shouldn't be at all. No, no. Um, yeah, I just... I, I know from, from my own 
feelings around this stuff that sometimes it's easy, easy to give into a sense that like even if you have a good idea your execution will probably fall short of the 10 other people who've had the same idea so yeah yeah I don't know that's pretty dark <laughs> um is there something you would like to read to finish off something new or something from these books here I've written a lot about mental illness and something that fascinates me is the lack of it and what it's like to to not to not be anxious or to not be depressed and yeah that fascinates me too <laughs> so this poem is called the unanxious mind the unanxious mind can spread as far as a sea in a world it owns a paddock bright in the skinkling sun free of voices and the downward bearing brain do not envy it for the light that shines around its eyes is balanced upon a pinpoint. Amnesia sweetens away the menaces, the worries direct from God. It floats like a boy, miles from ship and shark. It drifts like some drowned body, here to there, life to happy life, able to smell the oat fields, hear the delta of Bangladesh, the minute cries of children. What is it? this mind in the halo of its hardly thought thoughts. But perhaps a mind can rest like a nodding daffodil, sailing serene as a stalk on a creek in a bright untroubled moment that passes without a scar. Mm-hmm.